Well, hey, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and this is um, apparently the evening of adult themes. Uh, Aaron said that he's got some adult things to talk about, and uh, well, our text tonight um, has some adult things uh, to talk about. This is the uh, classic story of the woman caught in adultery that I thought about being a, a great example of someone who encountered Christ and uh, radically transformed her life. And so let's read it together. John chapter 8, starting in verse, well, actually chapter 7, verse 53, everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Are you with me? John 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses, or in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to him, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, And he was left alone in the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Father, we're grateful for this um, privilege that we have to study your word and this precious story. I pray that, uh, Lord, you would have our way in our hearts tonight and uh, that you would accomplish your purposes uh, through this text. We know that your word never returns void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which it is sent forth. And so would you be uh, put on display your glory, your power, your mercy, your grace in each of our lives tonight as we contemplate this amazing encounter that this woman had with Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, for the sake of time, I'm not going, and the heat, right? I'm not going to start off like I normally do with some illustration or example to draw you into the text. We're just going to get right into the text. And so before we do that, I think there's a unique feature about this text that we need to talk about quickly. Some of you may have already noticed in your margin somewhere, it has a little note there. Have you seen that yet? Have you noticed that yet in your text? My Bible says this, later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman. Some of your texts or Bibles might say something like, this story was not in the earliest manuscripts or most reliable manuscripts. And so while this text is often cited and preached, there is evidence 
that has led some Bible scholars to conclude that it is unlikely that this was not an original part of John's gospel, i.e., it doesn't belong in the scripture. Some of you are going, okay, wait a minute, are we like, you know, picking and choosing what parts of God's word uh, are the Bible and which aren't, and how, where do you begin, where do you end, how do you know which ones to leave in, which ones to take out, right? This sounds kind of fishy. Well, this is a, a, maybe a good lesson in what's called textual criticism, something that they talk about in seminary, right? You typically don't talk about it in church, but let me try to make it very simple, okay? When you examine a text of scripture to determine its authenticity, textual critics look at two types of evidence, internal evidence and external evidence. The internal evidence is, are things like the vocabulary and the style of the passage itself. And some would say that looking at the vocabulary, the vocabulary that's used, the style here, that it, it doesn't seem to have been written by John. It doesn't sound like the way John wrote the rest of the gospel. Now, that's very subjective, is it not? And typically when commentators say that and I go, yeah, whatever, move on, I don't even think about it, right? Um, but then there's external evidence. External evidence is what the copiers, the men who wrote or, or copied the scriptures, um, and church fathers, for example, what they said or did regarding a particular passage. And again, what these guys, what the copiers and church fathers did with this particular passage um, makes it unlikely that it was originally included by John. And this is where you come to that little note in, in your Bible that says something like the earliest and most reliable manuscripts leave out this passage. And so how we get to uh, the, the, the word of God is, okay, go back to the earliest and most reliable manuscripts, and that's most likely the inspired word of God. Furthermore, in the manuscripts that do include this passage, the copyists inserted them in different places. Some place them in chapter 7, uh, after verse 36, others place them in chapter 7, verse 44. One even puts it at the end of the book of John. Um, one, one even placed it in the, in, in the gospel of Luke, okay? So there's obviously some confusion about where this passage belongs, right? And again, this adds weight to the argument that this was, this was perhaps an oral tradition, a story that was added uh, later by a copyist who had heard uh, this story, um, no church father comments on this passage until the 12th century. Augustine, uh, one of the most well-known church fathers, suggested that, that some uh, purposely excluded this passage for fear that it would give people license to sin, that it, it appears that Jesus was condoning sin, that this woman got off scot-free, so we can't have that in the Bible, so let's, let's take it out. Well, all that to say, the fact that this passage is included in most English translations shows that while there may be reasonable uh, doubt surrounding it, we can't be absolutely certain. In other words, it can't be proven that the story was originally written by John, but it also can't be proven that it wasn't either. So when in doubt, it's better to keep it than throw it out. And in my opinion, it's better to preach it than to skip over it like a lot of commentaries do. And you can go through commentaries in John and they'll just like skip right over uh, chapter 7, verse 53, all the way to chapter 8, verse 11. 
And they'll start up again in verse 12. I would rather get to heaven having preached this passage and then find out it wasn't part of the Bible than to get there and find out it was part of the Bible and said, well, you know what? I skipped it. That's me, okay? And besides, while the authenticity of this passage is in question, its veracity isn't. In other words, everything in this passage is in perfect agreement with the rest of Scripture. And it it paints an accurate picture of Jesus Christ as we see him everywhere else in the Gospels. What he says and does in this story is, is totally consistent with what he says and does in other similar situations. So my personal opinion is that this is a true historical event from Christ's life. And I think it's interesting that the end of this gospel, the way this gospel ends in John 21, verse 25, is this, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. In other words, there's no way you could uh, fit everything that Jesus did and all the stories and all the encounters he had with people in one gospel. And so I think we should be grateful to God for providentially preserving this passage for our instruction and our edification. And so that's why we're looking at it tonight. And hopefully nothing I just said made you question the, I guess, the uh, authenticity of that copy of the Word of God that's sitting on your lap, that uh, this is a trustworthy right, a trustworthy standard of what we should believe and how we should live. But there are times, and and again, this is rare. This is extremely rare. This is not all over the Bible. This is just rare cases where there is a passage that that there's a question mark over, and uh, I think good godly men uh, take different sides on what to do with it. And so I'm choosing to go for it. Because I think in this classic account of the woman caught in adultery, Jesus modeled for us the perfect balance between grace and truth when ministering to sinners by not condemning sin or condoning sin. And that's a really fine line to walk. And so a simple way to to divide up this passage is is verses 1 through 9. You could call stoning sinners And verses 10 and 11 is saving sinners. And two totally different mindsets here. Uh, The mindset of the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, who are all about stoning sinners. And then we see Jesus, who was all about what? Saving sinners. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So let's look first of all at this idea of stoning sinners in Verse 53, again, going to the the context there of chapter 7, everyone went to his home after Jesus was ministering, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus would teach in the temple during the day, and he would spend the night outside the city on the eastern hillside uh, of of Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives. Verse 2 Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. So this was Jesus' custom, that he would uh, arrive back in the temple in the morning, and all the people were clamoring to hear him teach. And uh, it's interesting there, it says that he sat down and began to teach them. 
And this was what Jewish rabbis would do. They would stand up to read the scriptures, but then they would sit down to teach to show that they themselves were in submission to the authority of the word of God. So you're probably saying, why aren't you sitting down then? Well, hopefully I'm submissive to the authority of, of the word of God. You know that. But here's Jesus sitting there teaching the scriptures. And while he was teaching there, he was rudely interrupted by the religious leaders who burst into the temple courts, dragging a humiliated, half-dressed woman in tow. Notice verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Now, you're probably aware of this, but the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones responsible for maintaining the law. The scribes in particular, they were the experts in the law of Moses. It was their job to copy the law and to interpret the law for the people. And most of the scribes were part of the religious, uh, leading religious party called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees prided themselves in being the protectors of the law. And in order to keep people from breaking God's law, they built a fence around the law by adding hundreds of their own little man-made laws. And so they considered these man-made rules and regulations on par with Scripture, and they required the people to keep them plus the law in order to have a right standing before God. And so by the time that Jesus showed up on earth and entered Jerusalem to teach, Judaism had evolved into a works-based system of, of religion in which people were trying to earn their way to heaven, trying to be saved by their own good deeds. And so consequently, Jesus' ministry of mercy and grace confronted the legalistic and, and judgmental attitude of these self-righteous, self-appointed guardians of, of truth and morality. And they felt that their power and their authority was being threatened by Jesus. And, and, and the more popular he became, the more adamantly they opposed him at every turn and deviously sought to undermine his authority and to, to ultimately end his life and ministry. And so they bring this woman, it says, caught in adultery. And the word used here for caught means to catch red-handed, kind of like a thief, right? The hand's in the cookie jar. You got caught right in the act of stealing something. And so they had apparently caught this woman in the very act of adultery, which, which tells me that they must have been perhaps spying on her. Or worse, there was reason to believe here that they had set her up for this very purpose. In either case, they apparently hauled her out of bed early that morning and dragged her into the temple and threw her at the feet of Jesus, embarrassed and terrified. Can you imagine the worst sin you've ever committed <laughs> and you got caught in the act and you got drug out and thrown in front of everybody in the church? Just thrown down right here exposed. Can you imagine the shame, the embarrassment, 
of that, the fear. And again, these were the guys that were supposed to be the spiritual shepherds of the people. But it's obviously by their actions here that they had no concern for for truly shepherding people, the people that God entrusted to their care. Their harsh treatment of this woman shows that that all they really cared about was their position and their power and their influence and and, and what they wanted, their agenda. And they were just using her as as a means to an end. She was nothing more than bait to them. I mean, Jesus was the one they really wanted to catch red-handed, and so she was really nothing but a disposable pawn that was strategically placed to corner Jesus into a checkmate. Even if I lose my pawn, I don't care, because I'm going to win the game. And so they confront Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, we found this woman committing adultery, and the law that Moses gave us commands us to stone such a woman. Again, these were the experts in the law. They knew the law like the back of their hand. And you know what? They were right. That's exactly what the law said. In Exodus chapter 20, in Leviticus chapter 20, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, adultery was a capital offense worthy of the death penalty. And in those passages there, when when God gave Moses the law said that both the man and the woman who committed adultery were to be stoned to death. That the community was to come together and pick up stones and throw them at them to the point where they would die. In other words, that was the form of execution. It wasn't an electric chair. It wasn't a, a hanging thing. It wasn't a firing squad. It was the whole community comes out and, 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 and piles rocks over these people to kill them. And it was supposed to be a public spectacle that uh, you sin, you die, basically. So the question we should ask ourselves then, here these guys were quoting the law, where's the guy? Right? It doesn't just talk about the woman supposed to get stoned, it's the guy supposed to get stoned too. So where's the guy? And if they had caught this woman in the act, there was a God. And the fact that he's nowhere to be found may indicate that this whole thing was a setup. It was staged. And that possibly he'd been paid off by the scribes and the Pharisees to to sleep with this woman so that they could make an example out of her and, and, and make themselves look good. And ultimately, they were wanting to test Jesus. Notice verse 6. They were saying this, testing him so that he might have grounds for accusing him. So they were trying to trap Jesus here. They were trying to find something, anything that they could use against him. And this was just one of many times that they posed some question or presented a situation which was designed to impale Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. And in this case, if he said she shouldn't be stoned, then he would be contradicting the law of Moses. But if he said she she should be stoned, he would lose his reputation as the one who had compassion for the tax collectors and the sinners, right? He was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Furthermore, if he said that they should stone her, 
the scribes and the Pharisees could then turn him over to the Romans for instigating an execution uh, in defiance of Roman authority. And you have to read further in the Gospel of John. John 18, 31 talks about how they, they, they had to bring Jesus to Pilate because they couldn't crucify him on their own. They had no authority to crucify one of their own. They had to come to the Roman authorities. And so they could, they could give Jesus up as an insurrectionist. But in either case, they, they, they could accuse him of being either unjust or unmerciful. I mean, he was in a, a, a difficult spot. This was a quandary, right? Are you going to be unjust uh, and, and let her go, right? Or are you going to be unmerciful and killer? James Montgomery Boyce, phenomenal commentator, he's with the Lord today. This is what he said. He said, with devilish insight, these men had hit upon the problem of all problems in respect to the relationship of a sinner to God. How can God show love to the sinner without being unjust? From a human point of view, the problem is unsolvable. That's the dilemma of the cross, right? How can, how can God forgive us for our sin and at the same time, not be unjust, that, that there, somebody has to pay for, the, for our sin. Well, what they didn't realize is that Jesus Christ was God in whom justice and mercy are perfectly harmonized. And that's why I think Christ's answer is the, the perfect balance between justice and mercy, between loyalty to the law and love for the sinner. Notice how Jesus responded here, the end of verse 6. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. So instead of answering right away, he just bent down and began scribbling in the dirt with his finger. And of course, the, the obvious question here is, well, what did he write? And the answer to that question is simple. Nobody knows because it doesn't say. And yet that doesn't stop commentators from suggesting various things. Like the most popular one is that he was listing out their sins. He was writing out their sins in the sand. Or perhaps he wrote out a verse about being a malicious witness. Or some say he was just kind of doodling to buy himself some time to figure out how to respond. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The bottom line is it's not for us to know for sure what he wrote, and so it's best not to speculate. I mean, obviously, if it was essential to the story, the Holy Spirit would have included that, right? And so don't spend a whole lot of time contemplating your navel. That's your belly button, by the way, not an orange. It's your belly button. Contemplating your belly button like, whoa, what do you, forget about it, okay? We don't know what he wrote, but I would say this, the fact that he wrote with his finger in the sand, that could have been symbolic of his divine authority as the ultimate lawgiver and judge, right? In Exodus 31, verse 18, Moses recorded how God wrote the Ten Commandments with what? His own finger. So regardless of what Jesus wrote, with his finger, 
he wrote with the same authority as God when he originally wrote the law. And so as he was riding in the dirt, whatever he was riding, notice it says in verse 7, but when they persisted in asking him. In other words, they kept badgering Jesus for an answer. They, they were not going to let him get off easy. And perhaps they were thinking, you know what? We got him. We got him. He doesn't know what to do. He's stalling for time. Come on, Jesus. Cat got your tongue. But just when they thought that they had Jesus pinned in a rock in a hard place, he offered a brilliant response to their question. Notice it says, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. According to the law, Deuteronomy 17, 17, the person or persons who witnessed the sin was required to throw the first stone and then everyone else would join in the stoning. So in essence, what Jesus was saying here, hey, listen, God's law stands true. This woman deserves to die because of her sin. The death penalty should be exacted, but only by those who have kept the law perfectly. So all those without sin, step right up. Start, start stoning her. Have at it. Go for it. Now, Jesus' response here, I think, is has been misunderstood, it's been misused, misapplied by many people over the years. Some use this um, verse, let him, who, be, let him uh, uh, who is without sin be the first to throw a stone, that, that uh, this verse is a proof text to oppose the death penalty. That, that Jesus said, even though she deserved to die, you shouldn't do it. Or who are we? Who are we to do it? We, we deserve death too. Um, we have no right to kill someone else. That's the idea here. That some, they deny Romans 13, 4. That says the government wields a sword for a reason. A sword is not to tap somebody on the wrist when they do something bad. It's to, it's to kill them. So the Bible condones the death penalty. Uh, this verse is also referenced by those who refuse to fulfill their biblical responsibility to confront the sin of others. It's the, the well, who am I to judge? I've got sin in my life. Who, I, I don't want to throw stones at others by judging them or, or, or maybe confronting them about their sin. When Galatians 6.1 couldn't be clear, it says, beloved, if you see, or brethren, if you see a brother or sister overtaken in a fault, Involved in some kind of sin, you are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself lest you too be tempted. So, so we do have a responsibility to help somebody when they're in sin. But Jesus made it very clear how we're to go about that. In Matthew chapter 7, another familiar passage that's often uh, pulled out of context and misapplied, do not judge so that you will not be judged. You've heard that, right? Judge not lest you be judged. And, and that's somehow where we're not allowed to make any judgment about anyone or anything at any time. Well, that's not at all what Jesus was teaching here. He simply said, in the way that you judge, you will be judged. In other words, if you're a merciless judge, you'll be judged mercilessly. 
by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And this is the point. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or can you say, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye? So this is a, a, a very interesting picture. I mean, the, the think of the contrast between a, a little piece of sawdust that gets stuck in your eye and a, and a big old telephone pole sticking out of your eye. And, and it's almost, a, I think it was intended to be a humorous picture. You've got this guy with a telephone pole sticking out of his eye, and he's saying, hey, let me help you with that little speck. And, and, he's, and he's hitting you in your, the head with his telephone pole the whole time he's trying to get your speck out. And what's his point? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to this make, take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, Jesus was not saying, hey, don't help other people deal with sin in their life. Just make sure that you're dealing with sin in your life first so that you can see clearly, right, to help them. And I think Jesus was making the same point here in, in John chapter 8. He wasn't saying that anyone who sins can never judge any other person because that would rule us all out, right? He was simply confronting the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocritical, self-righteous judgment of this woman. They were so focused on the speck in her eye that they were oblivious to the log in their own eye. And so they walked around with this, this holier-than-thou attitude, looking down their noses at everyone else, thinking that they were better than everyone else because everyone else was a worse sinner than they were, right? The classic uh, prayer of the Pharisee, God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I do this. They just thought they were better than everyone else, that, that this guy was a worse sinner than I am. And let's be honest, it, it somehow comforts our depraved heart when we find someone or hear of someone who does something worse than we do or we've done, doesn't it? Somehow makes us feel better, we feel more justified. We, we excuse our own sin when somebody's sin seems worse than ours. And so they had forgotten their own evil. They, they had forgotten about their own sin. And so Jesus took the opportunity to, to remind them of it, and they got the point. Notice verse 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. You say, what did he write? I don't know. And don't let anybody else tell you what. He wrote, because they don't know either. Let it go. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. So they realized they'd been bested by Jesus in this case. But they were also convicted about their sin. And one by one, they slowly walked off, starting with the oldest first. Why do you think it was the oldest ones that turned and headed off. I think it's because the longer you live, the more keenly you aware you are of your sin. And so they had come to, to make an example out of this woman, and Jesus made an example out of them. And it says there at the end of verse 9, he was left alone in the woman where she was in the center of the court. 
So that's, that's what it's like to stone sinners. Now let's look, look at Jesus' heart to, to, to save sinners. Verse 10. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And that word condemn is, is, is I think, the most important word in this, this whole passage. He uses it again in, in verse 11. I do not condemn you either. Well, what does that word condemn mean? It means to accuse someone of being guilty and being subject to punishment. That you're condemned, you're under condemnation. But you can't be condemned or accused of doing something wrong if there are no witnesses. And you can't be condemned unless somebody files charges against you. I mean, think about it. If you were in a courtroom and you had been accused of some crime and uh, there was the prosecuting attorney and there was the witnesses and they're all ready to go after you, to, to, to condemn you, and uh, they just got up and left. The, the prosecuting attorney just got up, grabbed his briefcase, and left. And all the witnesses followed suit and they left as well. And you're standing there with the judge. The judge has no other choice but to, to let you go. There's, 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 no, there's no case. The, the defendant is left sitting alone, and all the judge can do at that point is dismiss the case. And that's exactly what Jesus did here. Since all the accusers, all the witnesses had left, Jesus, the divine judge in this case, dropped the charge. Notice verse 11. She said, no one, Lord, no one condemns me. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. The only one qualified to condemn that woman on that day was Jesus. And yet he didn't condemn her. And the only reason why he was the only one who could condemn her because he was the only one who ever lived who was without sin. He could have picked up that stone and been the first to cast it. What's more, he was the Lamb of God who would offer himself up as the sinless sacrifice on the cross, which gave him the authority to forgive her. And he forgave her based on the fact that he was going to die in her place on the cross. And be treated by God as if he was the one who had committed adultery. So some people think, well, she got off easy. Well, he didn't excuse her sin. Because her sin cost Jesus his life. Someone had to die. Because she had disobeyed the law. And the penalty for her sin was paid by Christ himself on the cross. So there's, there's no cheap grace here. And again, James Montgomery Boyce says it so well. He says, this is the gospel. This is the only solution to the problem of how God can remain just and also excuse the sinner. To us, salvation is free, but it is free only because the Son of God paid the price for us. Amen? And then notice how he ends here. He says, I don't condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. 
So he didn't condemn her, but he did command her to abandon her life of sin. And Jesus commanded her to repent of her sinful lifestyle. Another commentary said it this way, encountering Jesus, that's what we're talking about, right? Encounters with Christ. Encountering Jesus always has demanded the transformation of life, the turning away from sin. Sin was not treated lightly by Jesus, but sinners were offered the opportunity to start life anew. Jesus is all about fresh starts and new beginnings, and you may have made a royal mess of your life. But Jesus offers you a fresh start, offers you a new beginning. And don't think for a minute that Jesus was soft on sin here. He clearly told her, hey, listen, I'm dropping the charge, but don't do it again. He didn't say go and sin as little as possible. He didn't say obey some of the time, even most of the time. He said what? Obey all the time. And so God's standard is absolute perfection. And so Jesus set before her the perfect standard of God himself. What does it say in Matthew 5 verse 48? Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, right? And yet we know none of us will ever be perfect until we get to heaven. And in the meantime... That's why we love the doctrine of forgiveness. You may have seen the bumper sticker on some car, not perfect, just forgiven. Right? Christians are not perfect, we're just forgiven. And that's so true. But again, that doesn't give us a license to sin. We, we learned recently when we are going through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? In other words, just because we know that God's going to be gracious and merciful, that we just keep on sinning so that we can just ask him to forgive us and, and then he can just heap on his mercy and his grace in our, in our lives and somehow that exalts God's grace and mercy? No, may it never be. God's grace should motivate a true believer to sin less, not more. Some of you, some of you may remember this story. Uh, several years ago, we had a guest speaker here, he and his wife, and Kelly and I wanted to show him around and take him to some of the fun spots in the area. So one of the first places that always comes to my mind is the Bluebell Factory because you get free ice cream, and I'm all, all, all about free ice cream. So... I asked the couple, hey, you guys want to drive up to the Bluebell Factory? They kind of got a cool little tour you can go on and, and uh, eat some ice cream. And it's, it's just kind of a fun thing, kind of nostalgic. It's kind of Texas, you know. And uh, so they said, yeah. So anyway, we were driving out, uh, you know, uh, towards Brenham. And we just come out of Navasota. And we were having a great conversation in the car and just talking. And I was honestly not observing my speedometer and uh, was just kind of driving and just having fun. And the the... the what made me look at my speedometer was I saw a policeman, a state trooper coming this way, and that's when I looked down at my speedometer, and let's just say I wasn't going the speed limit. I was going quite above the speed limit. And so he passed me, I passed him, and what do we all do? You look in the rearview mirror and say, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. 
my wretched soul. And sure enough, he's turned around. And he started coming up fast behind me. And nobody else noticed this but me. Everybody else is just still talking and we're having a good time. And I'm like, I'm starting to get sweaty armpits, you know, because I'm like, it's going down right now. I'm getting pulled over. And uh, sure enough, uh, he lights me up. And I said, guys, we're getting pulled over. And I felt terrible. Here I am trying to be a good host, and here's our speaker. And I'm like getting pulled over. Pastor getting pulled over. And pull over. Police officer comes up. He says, how can I, uh, can, can, can I, can I uh, have you step out of the car, sir, please? And so, yeah, I got out. And I came back uh, behind the car. And he goes, uh, hey, where are you going so fast? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm going to the Bluebell factory. <laughs> and I could tell he was trying not to laugh. And I said, there's like a tour at three o'clock. And so we just wanted to make sure we got there. We got some guests from out of town. And he goes, uh, he goes, why don't you come back and sit in the car with me? It's a little hot out here. And so I went back and I'm here. Now I'm sitting in the police car, in the front seat. Okay, so I didn't feel as bad. I was in the back, I was in the front seat. And I'm looking around going, I've never been in one of these before. And, and uh, just trying to make conversation with a guy. And, and he was just a really nice guy. And so we were just talking about whatever. And, and I said, you know, you're the nicest police officer ever met. And I wasn't just smoozing him, okay? I wasn't just patronizing the guy. And he goes, well, I appreciate that, but you're probably not going to like me after I write you a ticket. He said, you know what? You were just going too far over the speed limit for me to let you off on this one. <laughs> I got to write you up. And so he wrote me a ticket. And I said, hey, man, I, I totally deserve it. I get it. Appreciate you being so kind and gracious. Um, he says, okay, man. Well, I hope you make it to the Bluebell factory. And uh, so I get back in the car, and I'm just like, my heart sank. I was just like, oh, man, I hate this. Now I'm probably going to have to pay, like, you know, who knows how much for that ticket. It's going to go my record. I'm going to have to go to driving school. And, you know, you know how that goes, right? And so everybody else was still kind of, they thought it was funny. They were laughing, making fun of me. And I'm just like, okay, great. And now we're going to be late. We're going to miss the tour, and I'm not going to get free ice cream. I mean, it's just went from bad to worse, right? <laughs> So anyway, we're, we're, we're driving along, and all of a sudden, I get a phone call, and it's a number I don't recognize, so I didn't answer it. Keep driving. All of a sudden, I get the phone call again, same number. I thought, hmm, wonder what that is. I didn't, I didn't answer it. So finally, I said, well, you yeah, better check that. So it was a voicemail, and I get on it. I'm still driving here to Bluebell, right? And, and he says, uh, hey, this is Officer so-and-so. I just pulled you over. Uh, would you please give me a call? And at that point, I'm like, oh, man, I'm really in trouble. You must have found something on my record. I'm really busted now. And so I just said, hey, this guy wants me to call him back. So I called him back, and he says, I'll never forget this. He, I, I said, hey, is this officer so-and-so? Yeah, he said, listen. He said, uh, he said, I should have never given you that ticket. He said, when you drove away, um, I, just, I just felt bad, and I thought I shouldn't have given you, I shouldn't have written you that ticket. He says, I've never done this before but I'm going to invalidate your ticket. And I was like, so what does that mean? <laughs> he said, it's, it's, it, there's nothing else you need to do. I'll take care of everything. And it's like, you never got the ticket. I was like, I said, thank you. This, I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to say too much, you know, because I was like, okay, I'm going to mess this up, right? So I said, thank you for not giving me what I deserved. And I hung up really quick. <laughs> And so we started talking about this as we're driving, going, no way, I've never had that happen. Everyone's like, no way, you can't believe it. is that true? He really said that? Yeah, he really said that. And we were just talking about, well, that's, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. 
that, hey, listen, you know what? I'm going to invalidate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to cancel your ticket. It's as if it never happened. You don't have to do anything. I'll take care of it. That's what Jesus said to us when he died on the cross. And so in the providence of God, we made it to Bluebell just in the nick of time. And we were the last ones that they let into this tour. And so normally I'm like into this tour. And I'm like looking around how they're making the different kind of flavors I like. And, you know, I'm peering at the window like a little kid, right? And, and, and that's not what I was like that day. It was really weird. Everybody else was kind of doing their thing and enjoying the tour. tour. And I couldn't get out of my mind. I can't wait for our drive home because I'm going to go the speed limit. And I hope I see that police officer sitting on the side of the road somewhere. And, and if I do, I'm just going to be like, I got it. I, I learned my lesson. You were gracious. You were merciful. And there was this, it was just the strangest thing. I just this, had this overwhelming desire to want to drive the speed limit and, and to honor that police officer who had been so gracious and, and so merciful to me. And I started thinking about, well, that's the gospel too, isn't it? That when you recognize that you've been saved, radically saved, and Jesus has been so gracious and merciful to you that you just want to live a holy and obedient life. You just want to honor him. You want to do what he wants you to do. If you, if you receive God's mercy, you just want to, to live for God's glory. Well, that's not what the, not what the Pharisees wanted. They, they wanted to make an example out of this woman. They were hoping that Jesus would too, and he did, just not the way that they anticipated. Instead of using her as a bad example and killing her for her sin, he used her as a good example of God's grace and mercy to forgive repentant sinners. And, and Jesus literally saved her life, not to mention her soul, which you read between the lines there to pick that up. But he stepped in and saved her from certain death by dying for her sin. And guess what? We are that woman. All of us have been caught red-handed in sin. We're under condemnation. We deserve to die and go to hell because of our sin. And yet Jesus did the same thing for you and me so that we could be forgiven if we place our faith alone in Christ's death in our place and we turn away from our life of sin. A couple of quick implications for us as we close here. This, um, I think, speaks a lot to those of us who maybe live under condemnation. I know there's some of you out there that this resonates with that you live a lot of times with shame and guilt. And Jesus says, listen, you need to hear Jesus saying to you tonight, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I think this is so helpful because so many Christians live under, live under a cloud of condemnation and they, they carry baggage around and this depressing list of sins that maybe you've committed and things you've done or haven't done and you have this guilt and this shame and, 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 and even things that you've repented of and, and you just feel so unworthy. 
And so let me remind you that you do deserve to be condemned. But can I also remind you that Jesus took that condemnation on himself at the cross? So you could be forgiven, not mostly forgiven, but completely forgiven. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no, what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I think there's also an implication here for those that may have a tendency to condemn. Some live under condemnation. Others live with a condemning spirit. You tend to be self-righteous. You tend to be legalistic, kind of like the Pharisees. You carry around rocks in your hand, ready to stone others for their sin. And it might be your spouse or your, your neighbors or your, even your kids, perhaps, people at work, people at the church, people sitting next to you even tonight. And you think you're better than they are, that they're a worse sinner than you are. And I think this is a great reminder for all of us that we need to, be, we need to learn to be gracious and merciful, humble, Forgiving, restorative, recognizing and working on our own sin first and foremost so that we can be used by God to help others overcome their sin. And so whichever one of those fits you, I hope that this passage is a a refreshment to your soul or a conviction to your soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Uh, your grace and mercy in all of our lives. We confess that there are times that we live under condemnation. There are also times when we are the condemners with the rocks in our hands. Um, There's times when our hearts are filled with adultery and there's times when when our hands are, are filled with stones and we just ask that you would forgive us for our heart that's so prone to wander and Lord, there's so, much, so many ways we can relate to this, this woman and this story. But I would pray, Lord, for that person tonight who maybe feels like they are that person. Perhaps they've done something um, and they have they kind of live with that scarlet letter, the big A on their chest that everybody knows about their sin And uh, so they live just with shame and embarrassment, Lord, that they would recognize tonight that that they can be forgiven for that completely, forever. And they don't have to live under that condemnation if they come to Christ. And Lord, would you help us as a church be a a, a merciful, gracious, restorative body that never condones sin, never, never treats sin lightly, never sweeps sin under the rug, but we, we deal with sin graciously in a Christ-like way. Lord, make us that group of people that knows how to, how to minister to another sinner, sinners ministering to sinners without condemning their sin or condoning their sin, just like Jesus did here. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.